trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I uh, took the day off yesterday, at least from, from doing this show, but I filled in for my friend Bill Colley on his radio show in Twin Falls, and that was fun. Actually, that was that was one of the that was one of the better fill-in gigs that I've had in a while. So uh, good times. Unfortunately, that means that uh, I had to skip doing this program, so I got a little bit of catching up to do. I do want to thank the sponsors who make this program possible. They include. Iron Sight Brewing Company. That's a subscription coffee company. If you're serious about your coffee, you should probably click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Also, TMCP Nation. That's uh, my friend John Harvey, the Modern Conservative Podcast. Lifesavingfood.com and quiltandsew.com. I've got a bunch of great sponsors, actually. I hope you just go to my website, check them out, uh, show them some love, tell them thanks for making this program possible, and, uh, well, I'll do the rest. Anyhow, so there's a lot going on. In the second half of today's show, I'm going to introduce you to a writer that I am following on Substack. His name is Dominic Scarcella. And Dominic has, I think, a really interesting take on the world. He's the author of Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen, and I'll let that just kind of intrigue you. What could that possibly mean? He's going to join me. We're going to talk about that again in the back half of the show. I want to actually, first of all, first I want to point you towards the article of the day in today's show notes. And I'm not going to share much from the article other than say, if you get a chance, this would be worth your time to read about. Most of us have no idea how much philanthropic giving is going on around us on a daily basis. Now, I had a very... Uh, blessed year of working in the nonprofit sector, uh, working for Connor Boyack at Libertas Institute, and, and my job was to to do fundraising, and it was fascinating, and it was it was pulling back the the curtain on a world that really I didn't know much about, but once you start to understand just how many people out there, um, first of all, have wealth and have means, but they want to put it to good use, they want to convert that money into purpose. And there are an astonishing number of different causes that they support. And yes, some of them are probably causes you would disagree with, but there are probably a lot that you would agree with as well. It's a fascinating thing. And, and the generosity and the amount of money that some of these, uh, profit, these nonprofit uh, foundations will give away in the course of a year, truly amazing. Mitch Daniels, writing for the Washington Post, has a terrific article on how local philanthropy can work without trying to save the world. Now, why would I share something like this? Okay. Cards on the table. Because I believe we are going to see a point where the problems faced by, as well as created by, governments at pretty much every level are going to render government ineffective in being able to address a lot of the current problems and needs. I, I know it's it's kind of cliche, well, you know, we're having this big budget debate right now in Idaho where people who are receiving government benefits are very insistent. They want to continue receiving those government benefits. The problem is the cost of government for everybody else, i.e. the taxpayers 
just keeps going up and up and up. Fewer people pulling the wagon, more people piling into the wagon to be pulled. It's not a situation that can go on forever. So when that stops, that doesn't mean that there is going to be uh, no more need. You know, everybody's needs will be met. It just means if we're, if we're going to seriously work at solving certain problems, we're going to have to start doing it without government as the primary problem solver, which actually is, is kind of a good thing if you think about it. So if you want to see how local philanthropy can work without trying to save the world, please feel free to check out the article of the day in today's show notes. These are show notes for February 2nd, 2024 at com. All right. Couple of different things here. Actually, I here's one that I want to share with you. This this one it may seem like like nitpicking, but one of the major tenets of hardcore left wing Marxist dogma is that belief that everything that came before us is either evil, superstitious, or oppressive, or a combination of all of those things. You can't win. And, and here's, here's a good example of that. Case in point, don't be too pleasant or you could be accused of committing a microaggression against someone. I'm going to play for you some audio from a little video that, uh, that a woman has, has put up here on TikTok. And, and her, her title is, This is Why It's Important to Be Explicit with Your Language. Listen to her describe the problem and then tell me, how could you ever possibly come away from an encounter with such a person intact? It's like a trap that's been set for you. Here's what she says. On today's episode of Is It a Microaggression or Is a White Lady Just Being Nice? A coworker says to me, you're running this meeting very well. Mind you, the person who was supposed to run the meeting didn't come. So it could have just been a nice compliment. What do y'all think? Okay, three things. Impact, intent, precision. Would she have felt compelled to say the same thing to a straight white male? We don't know because we can't guess her intent. Did I feel offended? No, I didn't. But that doesn't mean other people wouldn't be. So I think it's both. And that's why it's important to be explicit with your language. Did, did you get that? Were you able to uh, parse that word salad and, and get some meaning? It just sounds like there's nothing you can do. There is no winning. Especially if you're white. And especially if you're a male. Oh my goodness. You know, you're you're already two strikes and, and uh, the... The third strike is headed across the plate. Olivia Murray, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says, Don't be too pleasant in the workplace. You might be guilty of microaggression. Because almost everything is racist, no matter how uncolored or objectively good something actually is. Math, statistics, scientific method, they've all fallen to the wokesters. After all, these are instruments of racism and white colonization, didn't you know? And, of course, we watch the erasure of, erasure of uh, Judeo-Christian values and virtues from the nucle- nuclear family to politeness, which is what brought us to that video. So what exactly is being asked of us? Should we be impolite? This is what she asked, you know. Uh, but here's another PSA for you. She says, don't ask those questions at Elon Musk's ex or you might get slapped with a 12-hour suspension like she did. So the gal in the video wonders if the white lady was just being nice when she uh, complimented the former's, uh, the, when the latter commented the form, complimented the former's leadership skills, or if it was just actually a subtle unconscious jab. I mean, what is the mindset that you have to have to be actively looking for a reason to, to take offense? Well, they might be attacking me. They might not be complimenting me. They may be looking at some way to, to put me in my place. That just sounds like a self-fulfilling prophecy here. By the way, uh, in this case, Olivia Murray says, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that 
the, the woman who paid the compliment was actually paying a genuine compliment. Now, she says, as you can see, the video that I just played the audio from was actually filled in two, filmed in two separate segments. First, the backstory and the question posed to the audience eliciting their thoughts. Then comes the follow-up in which the woman gives her reasoning for why the compliment was actually both a compliment and a microaggression. In other words, you can't win. Actually, she says, let me clarify. You can't win if you're white. If you're white and you compliment a wokester, let alone one who's black, you're guilty of unconscious bias and or microaggressive behavior. You act completely professional, though in, although impersonal. You're rude, superior, and white-centric. Would the white lady have said the same thing to a man? No, probably not, because he's a man. Black man, white man, it wouldn't matter. Compliments and excessive friendliness play a big part in female-to-female platonic interaction but not female-to-male platonic interaction. Good grief. Olivia Murray says, I thought the left, the woke left was all about muddling the business's business environment of, uh, of a workplace. Haven't they been the ones forcing interpersonal relationships into job expectations? Or was that so last week? She says, these people who say positive characteristics like politeness are examples of white supremacy are the true bigots with horrendous opinions of black people asserting that courteous or friendly traits are white supremacy means that you must think those traits are exclusive to white people. Therefore, you must think blacks don't typically exhibit those traits because they're black. They also just show how ignorant they are because clearly they aren't tracking on the fact that politeness is a virtue for many cultures, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, other than Judeo-Christian white ones is, in, in fact, politeness is a main pillar in these cultures. So Olivia Murray says, if you're a person who's concerned about microaggressions, that means you can only be one of two people. Either you're insecure in your identity or your competency, or, or and you've got a chip on your shoulder, or you've been so brainwashed to think of yourself as a victim and your world is so non-racist and conflict-free that you're manufacturing a narrative that doesn't exist. By the way, she says, in this case, I think it's both. <laughs> A little bit of humor to uh, to round things out. Look, I think the, the best rule of thumb that I have found for situations like this, treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. That's it. Golden rule. I know. Well, how could it be so simple? You know, it's got to be more complicated than that. Yeah, we try to make it that way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's so. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. You're not going to go wrong. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Ah, it's always good to get back behind the microphone and share what I hope will be relevant information. I'll tell you something that has really been on my mind lately has been this this sense of respite that people are, are, are needing. And, and I say this based on conversations with a number of different folks who just say, I just can't watch the news anymore. I can't listen to the radio anymore. I, I can't even, you know, access social media like I did because things are so contentious. And part of it has to do with it's an election year and part of it has to do with, you know, there's, there's just drama and intrigue pretty much everywhere you turn. Now, especially in media because... Well, let's face it, that's what sells, 
right? Either anger or fear or something like that or morbid curiosity is going to get you to click, get those eyeballs on whatever, you know, content they're trying to get out there. My point being that the the people who who choose which stories to publish often will choose stories that will cause people to to take a stand. Okay, for instance, I've spent zero time worrying about uh, Taylor Swift and is she a gigantic psyop or, you know, what's her status with the NFL and her boyfriend, who I guess is, is an NFL player. But there's a lot of uh, to do about this. And, and in fact, uh, some people are now saying, well, you know, there's this conspiracy theory. The far right has a theory about uh, Taylor Swift. And it just goes on and on. And on. It becomes like this, this snake eating its own tail. And I don't understand, you know, how, how so many people get caught up in it. But I'm just going to offer this as a friend. Okay, I'm not, I'm not telling you you're stupid. I'm not telling you you're evil. If, if you've been concerned about Taylor Swift and her undue impact and how she might be the deciding factor for the 2024 election. No, seriously, I've, I've heard people trying to make that case. There are things far closer to home over which you have actual influence that you could choose to give your attention. But let's face it, the gossip's a little more fun. It's a little easier. You don't have to know as much. You don't have to work as much. All you have to do is emote. So choose wisely. And frankly, I think the people who don't find themselves caught up in, you know, the latest, uh, hey, did you hear what the Daily Tattler had to say? Are people who are going to have a better grasp on reality. Because they're not just repeating you know, sound bites or repeating, you know, some, some story that someone else has cultivated and, and uh, chosen to put out there to try to keep the public, you know, interested, still swirling around the trough, trying to get another bite. All right, moving on to another topic. The case of Missouri v. Biden still going on, headed to the Supreme Court, and it could well be a turning point for free speech in America. Now, Jeffrey Tucker has an excellent article from the Brownstone Institute on today's censorship is personal. And he gives, I think, a very good historical background. I'm going to go over this quickly, but he says the United States has the distinction the world over for being a home to the First Amendment, which guarantees free expression. And I'm just going to add this clarifier. How does it do that? By limiting the power of government to interfere with free expression. Yet a mere seven years after its ratification in 1791, Congress violated free speech, well, the First Amendment, in the most severe way with the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, which made it a crime to engage in false, scandalous, and malicious writing against government officials. Now, the Sedition Act mentioned Congress, the President, John Adams, government generally as protected, but it was silent about Vice President Thomas Jefferson. Upon the election of Jefferson in 1800, it was repealed immediately. Indeed, the censorship was so controversial that Jefferson's opposition contributed to his victory. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says the experience taught an important lesson. Governments have a tendency to want to control speech, meaning writing in those days, even if it means trampling on the rules that bind them. And this is because they have this insatiable desire to manage the public mind, which is the story people carry around that can make the difference between stable rule and popular discontent. So it's always been this way. He says, we like to think that free speech is a settled doctrine, but that's not true. 
35 years after Jefferson's victory in 1835, the U.S. Post Office banned the circulation of abolitionist materials in the South. And this went on for 14 years until the ban was lifted in 1849. And then 12 years later, President Abraham Lincoln revived censorship after 1860, imposing criminal penalties on newspaper editors that supported the Confederacy and opposed the draft. Once again, people who disagreed with regime priorities were considered seditious. Woodrow Wilson, by the way, did the same thing during the Great War, targeting anti-war newspapers and pamphleteers again. A new book by David Beto is the first to document FDR censorship in the 1930s, muzzling opponents of his administration. Then in World War II, the Office of Censorship got busy monitoring all mail and communications. The practice, the practice continued on after the war in the early years of the Cold War with the blacklists against alleged communists. So the bottom line is, there's a long history of government using every means to channel speech, especially when technology finds a new way around the national orthodoxy. Government has usually adapted to the new problem with the same old solution. For instance, when radio came along in the early 1920s, radio stations exploded around the country. The federal government quickly responded with the Congress-created Radio Act of 1927, which made the Federal Radio Commission. When television seemed inevitable, that agency converted itself to the Federal Communications Commission, which long kept a tight rein on what Americans heard and saw in their homes. Now, in each of the above cases, the focus of government pressure and coercion was the distribution portals of information. It was always the editors of newspapers, then it became the broadcasters. So, sure, the people had free speech, but what does it matter if no one hears the message? The point of controlling the broadcast source was to impose top-down messaging for the purposes of managing what people generally think. Now, of course, in 1995, the web browser was invented and an entire world grew up around it that included news from many sources, and then eventually social media, too. The ambition was summarized in the name YouTube. This was a television from which anyone could broadcast. Facebook, Twitter, and others came along to give every single person the power of an editor or broadcaster. And keeping with the long tradition of control, what was the government to do? There had to be a way, but getting a hold of this giant machinery called the Internet was not going to be an easy task. And here Jeffrey Tucker walks through the several steps that they took us to. The first was to impose high-cost regulations on admission, so only the most well-heeled companies could make it big and consolidate. The second was to rope these companies into the federal apparatus with various rewards and threats. The third was for government to winnow its way into the companies and then subtly push them to curate information flows based on government priorities, which takes us to 2020, when this vast apparatus was deployed to fully manage messaging on the response to the pandemic. Jeffrey Tucker reports it was highly effective. For all the world, it seemed as if everyone responsible was fully in support of policies that have never before been attempted, such as stay-at-home orders, church cancellations, and travel restrictions. Businesses nationwide were shut with hardly a peep of protest that we could hear at the time. So, back to the case of Biden v. Missouri. The case against the government here is that it cannot do through third parties such as social media platforms what, is, what it is forbidden from doing directly by virtue of the First Amendment. And the case in question is properly known as Missouri v. Biden, and there is much at stake with its results. If the Supreme Court decides that the government violated free speech with these measures, 
It will help secure the new technology as a tool of freedom. If it goes the other direction, censorship will be codified in law and it will give license to agencies to lord it over what we see and hear forever. So anything could happen. There's a lot at stake here. The Supreme Court will hear arguments on the pretrial injunction against agency intervention in social media coming up on March 13th. And Jeffrey Tucker says this year will be the year of decision about our fundamental rights. There's a lot to this article. It is worth your time. And while I'm on the subject, I'm just going to recommend you should really check out the Brownstone Institute. They have been one of the most reasonable and rational voices and sources of credible information that I've found, you know, throughout the pandemic and and beyond. Definitely worth your time and a lot of great information right there at your fingertips. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so excited to introduce you to a guest. And and I want to tell you that there's this little journey that I've gone through in my life in, in trying to find worthwhile sources of information. And, and I feel very indebted to the creators of Substack for, for pulling together what I think is really a, a platform where people can speak freely. And, and I say this from the standpoint of, I don't want the same old mainstream left versus right paradigm, let's politicize this kind of thing. I want some fresh takes. And Dominic Scarcella is the epitome of a fresh take on this. Dominic, I met you through Substack. It's a pleasure to, to have you on the program. Talk to me a little bit about who you are and walk us through your journey to your book, Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen. Well, I'm I'm trying to be a good neighbor, uh, <laughs> knowing full well that uh, I'll probably be a bad citizen for it, and perhaps already am. Uh, uh, so, th- thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, yes, uh, we were um, sort of introduced over, I think it was LinkedIn, by a. a a fellow uh, journeyman in the liberty advocacy advocacy space, um, and then uh, you know if I, you have a Substack, I have a Substack. You have a Substack, I have a Substack. You know, <laughs> you do podcasts. I like being a guest on podcast. Oh, here we are, <laughs> uh, and and, and, right? and talk- radio. <laughs> Now, look, you and I. I think clearly we're going to line up on on a bunch of of different uh, principles here, but. I have to know something. Something flipped a switch in you at some point where you went. You know what? I need to. I need to figure out how to be a good neighbor and a bad citizen. And and maybe explain what when we say bad citizen. What what do we mean? Uh, someone who has a a different perspective and a different grounding than what it takes to be a a good citizen. Uh, you you mentioned my book. It's it's good neighbor, bad citizen. And the subtitle is Reflections on the Core Social Conflict Revealed by Jesus Christ's Way of the Cross. So it's a it, it's an anarchist book, but it's it's before that it's a Christian book because it's the gospel that teaches you about voluntarism and, and anarchy in a in a political sense. And um, I know there are so people who think well those things can't be compatible. I would beg to differ. And I would offer. I would beg to differ too, and and you just have to look at Jesus's way of the cross for it. And and I I would look at people like. Are you are you familiar with Joseph Sobran? 
Do you remember the great Jill Silver? Yes. Is, is he of the the wonderful phrase, um, if you're for intervention abroad, you're a conservative. If you're for intervention <laughs> domestically, you're a liberal. If you're for both, you're a moderate. If you're for neither, you're an extremist. Yes, that sounds like That's him. That's him? He, that, he, that, that is him. He, I, he I, am, I am an extremist. I have nothing in common <laughs> with moderates. But he, he journeys, he, he chronicles his, his journey from, um, how does he call him? He calls himself the reluctant anarchist. And 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 I love it because he takes a lot of the, the stigma out of that word. Because people hear anarchist mm. and they think bomb throwing, terrorist, you know, chaos and everything. Would you mind walking us through that? When we talk anarchist and volunteerism, we mean something quite different, don't we? Uh, I do, in a sense. Uh, you you mentioned uh, Substack. My my very first Substack post, which was a uh, a little less than a month after releasing the the book, is uh, called the appropriately enough the Good Citizen, the Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen Journey. Uh, it's exploring Christ's gospel, exploring anarchism, and realizing their beautiful harmony. And the opening line for it is, anarchism gets a bad reputation. Part of it likely stems from the fact that the term is a statement of negation rather than a statement of position. It immediately tells you to oppose something, but not to support something. And I think that's a problem, even for people who don't associate with, with bomb throwers. It's, okay, I get with what you don't like, but... I mean, you can't go around living just based on what you don't like and what you're avoiding. Right. I mean, don't you have to aim for something? Don't you have to have a substance to what you believe and 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 how you act in the world and 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 what you seek from from social relationships, from from uh, your your own livelihood, if if you can make one. Um, and and I also tie it to the a similar though not as pronounced problem that, that Christian ethics gets as well. You know, <laughs> Christian ethics and morals similarly carry a negative connotation for many people, likely because the most, most well-known guidelines are the Ten Commandments, which mm -hmm. are dominated by what not to do. So right away, there's a there's a similarity in, in sort of the surface, shallow rejection of each of them, because they're each seen as don't, 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 and, and, People don't, I think deep down people would rather not think in those terms. I think even as cynical as, as popular culture seems today in, in 2024, I, I think deep down inside a lot of people, maybe most, I hope most, um, really do want to live in terms of something positive, something to strive for. Uh, something to value good rather than to be disgusted by. Let me share with you something that I'm seeing. I'm encountering this a lot, and and okay. it's it, maybe it's more of a mirror of how I'm seeing the world, but I regularly talk to people who tell me they are feeling um, maybe not quite hopeless, but but close to overwhelmed just by the magnitude of all the drama that's going on in this corner and that corner. Politics seems to be a big driver. Of, of a lot of the drama. And I know you've, you've written about that, you know, the fundamental nature of politics kind of, kind of lends itself to that. Yeah. I, um, it, it's not just politics because we're naturally different and we do naturally have to contend with each other in the world because we're not the same. Um, politics gets, gets nasty when it's, it's tied to, imposing on other people 
which um, is I, is that pretty much not how the isn't that how the 2024 campaign is kind of shaping up though the the fear is you can't let them get into power so the, we the we most have important to, election of our lifetimes until the next most important election of our lifetimes well and trailing we, the previous most important election of our lifetimes that one we have no choice but to do unto others before they can do unto us and that's that's what it's devolved to and and the the worst uh, part of it not not doing unto them well but uh, it, it becomes yeah people vote against not vote for yep. and uh you know politics for me is um politics is the jostling for control of institutions and and the ethics and morality of politics depends therefore on you know first the nature of the jostling mm-hmm. uh to the nature of the control being sought and three the nature of the institution itself and you know i I, I try to start with a, a just a realistic view of what politics is. I, I don't like the euphemisms that are used for it. Um, th- there's a famous one by Otto von Bismarck that's been uh, copied by many people, including the current president, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, politics is the art of the impossible, uh, of the possible, the attainable, the art of the next best, which makes it sound like so wonderful, except it's it's not that at all. Um, you know, you, and, and here's how you can tell that's a terrible definition of politics, because you can swap out several other words for politics and you get a better definition. I mean, I go through this in, in my, my second Substack article that I wrote. You know, Engineering is the art of the possible. Agriculture is the art of the possible. Physics is the art of the possible. Teaching is the art of the possible. Sculpture is the art of the possible. Entrepreneurship is the art of the possible. Hairstyling is the art of the possible. But politics, hardly. <laughs> saying politics is the art of the possible is like defining the sun by saying the sun is in the sky. Birds are in the sky. Insects are in the sky. Clouds are in the sky. Smoke is in the sky. Planes and helicopters are in the sky. The sun is in the sky tells you practically nothing about the sun itself. And once you learn what the sun actually is, you realize it's not even true. The sun isn't in the sky at all. It merely appears that way from an Earth-centric perspective. So if you want to drill down into the problem with politics, first be honest about what it is, what makes it terrible, and and what are the good ways that we jostle with one another as, as we we deal with each other constructively. Because, you know, politics is, is in our families, our workplaces, our schools, our religious institutions, our neighborhoods. Um, you know, people should express their ideas and goals and, and complete for influence as long as it's nonviolent. I mean, we, we, you have to like competition. If you like competence, it's the same doggone word. Yep. So if you value competence, then the art, the, the, the act of making competent is competition. So we, we are going to jostle. We are going to compete. We are going to throw our ideas at each other. We're going to scaffold on them where it, hopefully we're active listeners. And so we're, we're hearing the other person out, reading fairly, comprehending, and, and, and maybe we get into what good politics is. But, but as long as you're involved with a coercive civil authority, which is what your government is, a, a, an institution that claims a monopoly on violence, your politics will always be evil. You cannot take something that at its root, at its definition is evil and say, well, it's good if I just do it a certain way. <laughs> Sorry, no, especially if you're a Christian. The ends do not justify the means for a Christian. If anything, it's the other way around, right? The means justify the ends. Okay, hold that thought. We are talking with Dominic Scarcella. I'll have a link to his Substack in the show notes. 
We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am joined today by Dominic Scarcella. He is the author of the Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen Substack, and he also has a book by the same name. And I have a link in today's show notes that will take you directly to his Substack. Um, Dominic, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you is, for most of us, I think the most miserable people we know are the people for whom political power is the dynamic that has to prevail in every human encounter. You know, they're always like, who has the political advantage? You know, who's uh, who's more intersectional, right? Who has who can who can basically own the other person? There are lots of ways that you can push back and and be a good person, like be a good Christian. Talk to me about some of the things that that we're already doing that uh, are not necessarily showing weakness, but actually showing just the the willingness to withdraw consent and do what we want to do, do what we need to do in order to to get you know our needs met. I do talk about undermining the the government. We're 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 not here to overthrow it because we don't want to put just our people in charge. That's not really. Uh, undermining, and that's not really being against it. If if you really think it's evil, then you should not want to do it yourself. Yeah. So then it becomes, how do we just make alternatives? How do we undermine these power structures? And and I, I've been fortunate enough to talk and, and meet some people who are building these things, but s- some of them are ways that we, we already know about. Um, I mean, those of you who are homeschooling, who are growing or raising your own food, who are seeking or providing health care outside of the medical induct- industrial complex, if we can, you know, coin yet another blank industrial complex term there. Why would anybody want um, to do that? Yeah, <laughs> right, it, well, we observe it in reality. <laughs> you know, if you're using non-Overton window sources of news and analysis, like perhaps the your, your uh, radio shows and, and podcasts, Brian, and, and perhaps uh, my writing, my, my book and, and my substack, your substack as well. You know, if you're, if you're doing that, if you're, creating businesses that offer alternatives to popular and often crony brands. Um, if you're trading via extra government mediums and, and methods, you know, uh, black markets, agorism, you know, those, those aren't necessarily bad things. And if you're doing any other activity that eschews or, or, or undermines the, what I call the dull, shallow, parasitic mainstream culture, then, you know, to, to succeed at that, first of all, that's, that's not a weak and, and cowardly thing to do. Um, but you are doing something that that's at least pointing towards anarchism. You're you're foregoing the the ruling imposed hierarchical social order and and that institution as your your guiding light in your life. I mean, I I, um, I go through it in, in the book in the introduction. Um, what the difference is between a neighbor and a citizen? It's a totally different set of priorities. Um. I don't know if you'd, uh, you'll uh, let's t- let's a, talk a about that. Actually, I'd I'd sure. be very interested in that distinction. Sure, I mean I, I say right there in the, the beginning of the introduction, Jesus preaches and models what it means to be a good neighbor. He's also frequently considered a bad citizen. There's no escaping this tension. Being a good neighbor requires a different mindset and value system than being a good citizen, and they often conflict. And then I go through a couple of you know uh, um, 
uh, comparisons or that are really points of contrast between them. Uh, good neighbors treat each other as peers. Good citizens treat each other according to official status. Good wow. neighbors seek the person, right? Oh, oh it gets better. <laughs> good neighbors seek the personal intimate betterment of themselves and each other. Good citizens seek the external validation of an impersonal system. Good neighbors align to voluntary open-ended interactions. Good citizens align to coercive civil authority and imposed hierarchical social order. If you're always thinking, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do this? Is that guy allowed to do this? Where's my place? Is that guy below me or is he above me? You know, what, what do I have to do here? Brilliant. You know, good neighbors insource their ethics. Charity and friendship are the key virtues of their relationships. Good citizens outsource their ethics. Compliance with the commands of rulers and enforcers is a fundamental and necessary aspect. Some might call it a civic virtue. And here's your, here's your bumper sticker. Here's your, your really uh, short tweet. Good neighbors consent. Good citizens conform. Wow. That is, that's actually one of the best comparisons I think I've heard. Because people's identity gets wrapped up in, well, I'm obedient. Mm, you know, I'm doing mm -hmm. the speed limit in the fast lane, but I'm, you know, I'm the virtuous one out here on this freeway. And, and they're not. <laughs> they're just the most obedient. And everybody who's trying to break the law for real. <laughs> no, no, but I, I know there are some states. I've seen the video of, a, I think it was an Arizona trooper pulling over somebody driving in the fast lane, driving the limit. And he says, doesn't matter that you're driving the limit. I know you're proud of yourself for being obedient, but you're impeding the flow of traffic. That's why I pulled you over. And isn't that confusing, though? Because you get pulled over by the law enforcer because you technically went the law. So it, it, that's almost yep. a case where um, having the regulations out there just makes it even harder to get along with each other. Yeah, right? well, it makes it more difficult. It, it, it becomes a sticking point of animosity for us. And it's sad how many people really, truly fear somebody's ability to choose for themselves. No, they might make a wrong choice. Mm -hmm. That's how we learn. I mean, you know, within yeah. reason, of course, we're, we're not talking about, you know, I took my kids out uh, base jumping, you know, for the first time. None of us have any training. Okay, that's <laughs> that's ridiculous. But, you know, people, as long as it's peaceful. If what they want to do is peaceful, it should probably it should be on the table. But we're sure. do you understand human dignity? The fact that we have an innate worth as human beings, and and that's where our natural human rights are are grounded. You know what are natural human rights? Well, what is a right? A right is a valid claim. Two plus three equals five is right because according to the definitions of two and three and five and plus and equals, that claim can be demonstrated. Well, a right, as we talk socially, is the same thing. It's a valid claim. So what are the valid claims any person can make pre-politically simply by virtue of being human? Well, you have a claim to your life. You you have a claim to to your your intentional actions of your life, which we call liberty. And you have a claim to your duly cultivated and obtained objects that you need to sustain yourself, which we call property. And, you know, these are, these are things that we, we don't need a lot of, um, we, we don't need to be ordered 
to do these things. Some people think we need permission sometimes just to execute them because, oh, yeah. you know, we it's been so ingrained in us to outsource your ethics, outsource your critical thinking, which is even worse, outsource your agency, you know, always make sure you have permission for that. Always make sure you have a license or, or, or a whatnot for it. And I, I just, I, I think it's a mindset change. And that's really why I, I, I think if you're going to be a good neighbor, eventually you're going to be a bad citizen because the, just the, the worldviews and the mindsets and the orientation, they're frankly not compatible. I think about the people who, um, hid Anne Frank and her family. They were they were good neighbors. The people who were hunting them down and who turned them into the Nazis, those were good citizens. Yes. Oh, and there's uh, how many... Every great atrocity, by great I mean in scale, not that it was, you know, a value judgment. Every right. great atrocity in human history is made possible necessarily by obedient, compliant people. One lunatic with a megaphone can't do a heck of a lot. One lunatic with a megaphone or a microphone or a a video camera and hordes of people who have outsourced their thinking and their ethics to that lunatic with the, the amplification. That's where your problems come in. So this, this, to you, dear listener, this is the reason why I wanted to introduce you to uh, Dominic Scarcella, because this guy can make you think and uh, to question things and look at things in, in, a, in a new light. Dominic, we're down to about our last 60 seconds here. Um, what would you like us to take away? What would you like my audience members to take away from our conversation today? Uh, that uh, doing the right thing is not always easy. It, it's Rarely the psychological path of least resistance, um, but Jesus doesn't say it will be easy. He, he says it will be blessed. So make the effort. Make the effort. You can do it. You, you, you have that ability within you. You have that grace within you. Um, that's, that's what your soul is. Um, try it. Make the effort. Make the honest effort. Keep going. Uh, you can do it. Understand that there will be conflict. But understand that that conflict is not unexpected, nor is it ultimately insurmountable. Beautiful. I got to have you back on the show. We'll, we'll have to continue this conversation at a later date. Thanks so I, much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show.